How are we doing, Grace Church? Can everybody hear me okay? Good morning. There you go. We got you. Uh, Dr. Allen sends his regards to you from West Pittman Baptist Church this morning. Uh, isn't it cool? We are, we are blessed, are we not? Uh, we get to hear the guy that other churches bring in for their revivals and their homecomings. They're the, he's the hired hand, and we get to hear him every Sunday, except for this Sunday. And, uh, but I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I think we can all agree that we are blessed. You know, I think there's not very many things I think Americans right now agree upon. Um, but I think we can all agree upon, whether they're a, a, a Republican, a Democrat, they're, they're a believer in Jesus Christ, or they're just lost, that no one is perfect. People are not perfect right? You hear us say here at Grace Church that the church is just broken people pointing broken people to the only one who isn't broken because only Jesus is unfailing. And uh, as we're going through um, this series in the book of Mark, which I've really enjoyed, I don't know about you guys, um, something that's encouraged my soul is to hear that or, or, or to see that John Mark you know, wrote that gospel, obviously, and you know, there was a point in time where he just totally made a mess of it, totally dropped the ball. Uh, he was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and just abandoned them on the mission field, uh, went home scared to death like a little coward, uh, caused such a rift between Paul and Barnabas that they, they no longer could do ministry together because Paul was like, this guy is as unreliable as a broken tooth. It's like putting weight on an ankle at a joint. And yet we see we have John Mark's gospel account today. And, and, and not only that, in, in the last letter that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, hey, last, last chapter of his, you know, his writings, hey, bring John Mark. He's profitable to me for the ministry. I think that's so cool and encouraging that someone can completely blow it and yet finish strong. And, and I was reminded a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Allen put that, this illustration on the board and I, I wrote it back up there again and how that point A, you know, everyone in the room, hopefully we're at point A, right? We have been born again. We are in the kingdom. But once you've been born again, there is a direction that God has for your life, a purpose for your life. It's, we call it God's preferred future, point B. It's the person that, that he's calling you to be, and there's something that he's calling you to do. I don't know what it is. You may not know what it is, but he does. But you know what? We can make a mess of that as well. And there are times that we don't, we don't, we're not uh, following uh, uh, the, the pathway to point B. We're, we're kind of that dotted line, and we find ourselves over there in left field by point X. And so the point of this sermon today is what do we do when we find ourselves at point X? How do we get back on track and head in the right direction back to point B? Can I tell you, it's not as important as how you started this race that the Lord has set before you as it is how important it is you finish the race well that the Lord has set before you. And that's our job here at Grace Church. That's what me, Dr. Allen, Dane, Mr. Cliff, that's what we want to see. The leaders at Grace Church is everyone no matter what we've done, no matter what our past is, what we're going through right now, how do we finish strong for the glory of God? And so if you find yourself far away from point B this morning, far away from God's preferred future for your life, this sermon's for you. 
This morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of the pathway to point B. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 23. And we're going we're gonna to read the first 11 verses. And uh, this, is, this is an account that Paul is in Jerusalem, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, which is just a religious body. It's made up of uh, Sadducees, of Pharisees. The Sadducees are the religious liberals of their day. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives of their day. And he's on trial before them. God has given him an opportunity to make much of Jesus. And let's, it's kind of encouraging. I don't want to throw Paul under the bus because he's, he's a giant of the Christian faith. But it's encouraging that even he wasn't perfect. Let's see what happens here in Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And this high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees', Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that, that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, we wander off the path. We wander off the path when we are not continually filled with the Spirit. This morning, how do you know you are filled with the Spirit? Does the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, are these permeating through your life? Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what else you have going for you in your life. If you lack self-control, it's going to end up in disaster. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. You're just ready to be devoured at any moment. The walls are broken through. You show me a man who doesn't have self-control in one area of his life, and I'll show you a man who doesn't have self-control in other areas of his life. And guess what else we'll be lacking? It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. And so if you are lacking joy this morning, there's probably a lack of peace in your life as well. And if you're lacking love this morning, 
there's probably a lack of gentleness as well. If you don't have patience, you won't have self-control. They all are in it together. That when you're filled with the Spirit, this is, this is what starts to characterize your life. But when we're not, what happens? When we're not filled with the Spirit, we, we are walking by the flesh. We're filled with the flesh, and we start to veer off that pathway that God has for us. And look what Paul does. Look what happens to Paul. What is he, what is he can't control? His temper, right? Now, let's give Paul a break. It's been a bad day. I've had him. You've had him. It's been a bad day. He's been arrested. He, he was beaten yesterday. He's, he's in chains. He's probably hungry. He's probably tired. I get very grumpy when I'm like that, and I'm not even in prison, right? I'm not even on trial. But look at verse 2. The high priest... Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Now, that word strike, it actually means, it's not like a little sissy slap. It means to punch in the face. He gets punched in the teeth. And I don't know about you, that would probably make me upset as well. But look what he says in verse 3. I mean, can't you just see him losing his mind, losing his temper? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I promise you, he probably didn't say it as gentle as I just did. You know, he's had it. And uh, basically, that's the most insulting thing that you can tell a religious leader. I mean, it's going to the high priest and saying, God is going to strike you, you dang hypocrite. You're, you're just a... A white wall, like they used to pressure wash, like, I don't think they had pressure washers, but they would wash the tomb so they would look clean on the outside, but on the inside it was full of dead men's bones. That's what he's calling him. He's mad. So much for turning the other cheek, right? And Paul even acknowledges his sin in verse 5. And so, Grace Church, let's not try this. Don't try this at home. The person that God has put in your life to witness to and testify about Jesus Christ, don't go sin in front of them. It's usually not going to work very well. You're going to push them away from Jesus rather than bring them toward Jesus, right? Uh, when, I was in, um, when I was in dental school, there was a, there was a guy, I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever just lost your mind on somebody, uh, there was a guy that, um, you know, God puts people in your life, I call them EGPs, extra grace people, that just push your buttons. And for a couple of years, you know, I mean, I think he liked me okay, but it, he was the guy that always, oh, hey, Baldy, you know, and all those other kind of stuff. And so after a couple of years, you just, I just had it. And he said something, and I lit into him, not with my fists, but with my words. You know how I felt afterwards? Horrible. And I apologized twice. And twice he didn't accept it. You know what he told me? He's Hindu. He told me, I always knew Christianity was a fraud. You confirmed it. Hey, I know believers who, and unbelievers alike, 
who you could punch them, and you know what? They're going to heal. But you can say something which is, that comes out of your mouth that causes a wound that they're still not recovered over, and it's been years. We can use our words to build people up or tear them down. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Y'all hear that? For every careless word. You know, influence, it takes years to build, to be an influence in someone's life, and it takes seconds to lose. And don't think for one minute that Facebook doesn't count. That that's not a platform that God has given you to testify and make much of Jesus and people are watching what you say. Because here it is. What we say reveals what's in our hearts. Dr. Allen, a, a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday, when he preached on the, on the parable of the sower, how there was a connection between our hearts and our ears. Well, guess what? There's a connection between our hearts and our tongue. And what comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. So to get from point A to point B, we have to walk according to the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Otherwise, we'll be walking according to the flesh, and it'll be impossible then for us to let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to, to Him. Grace Church, when we are lacking in self-control and patience, then we are not full of the Spirit, and we find ourselves full of anger, full of worry, full of lust, full of you name it. How effective do you think you'll be in the ministry then? You'll, you'll see why then Paul in verse 6 doesn't testify about the Lord Jesus Christ, but looks for a way to escape. Because he's not filled with the Spirit, he's full of anger right now. And there's a relationship. If you're full of the Spirit, guess what? Effective witness. Can do mighty works for the kingdom. Full of the flesh, you can do nothing apart from him. Even if it's a spiritual giant like Apostle Paul. So this, this tells me that Paul is relying on his own strength at this moment and not the Lord's strength. And so we wander off the path when we are... are not continually filled with the Spirit. And then we, we continue to wander off the path when we forfeit making much of Jesus by relying on our own strengths. You know, in the book of Acts, in every opportunity an apostle, a, a deacon, a, 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 a disciple had to be uh, a witness, that, that God gave them a platform to make much of Jesus, it says every time that they spoke with boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Every time. But when you're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and instead you're full of anger, guess what? All you got is your own giftedness and cleverness to get you out of this. And so look at verse 6 with me. Do you have that video? Laurelyn's got a little video of, of me taking Evelyn to the uh, action air to give you a little demonstration of this is how far it'll take you. You, you ever watched American Ninja Warrior? And they've got the warp wall, right? This is Evelyn trying to get up the warp wall. And this is us when we're walking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. This is how far it'll get you. 
She almost got it. She almost got it. Cute as could be. But look at, look at verse 6 for me, with me. It says, But Paul, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council. You know, if, if, if Grace Church, I promise you, if Paul was alive, if he could, and if he could take an eraser, he would erase the words Paul perceiving and write Paul proclaimed. The Bible says he perceived that he got a clever idea. He looked and saw what was going on and said, aha. The, the, we, we use this as a, maybe you've heard of the parable of the, the shrewd manager. Shrewdness. It's being clever. It's coming up with a good idea. And what the good idea was is he thought of something to get the Sadducees and the Pharisees to fight amongst themselves so they kind of take their focus off of him. Right? Because the, the Sadducees were the religious, the, the religious um, liberals of their day. He, he, he brings up the resurrection, that there's an afterlife. And so he knows what, since he was a former Pharisee, he knows what they're going to say. And so they, they, he, he causes this division in, in, in the Sanhedrin. And so basically what he does is he chooses to survive, right? He chooses to survive in this world rather than try to take a chance to change this world. You've got a captivated audience. The room is jam-packed jam full of people that when they breathe their last breath on this earth, their next breath is going to be in a place called hell. And look at what he, the same guy, wrote Romans, the book of Romans, just a couple years ago. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. Have you all read that before? It makes me realize I've got so, because I really don't want to throw Paul under the bus because He's tracking towards point B so much better than I am. So I don't mean to be harsh towards Paul at all. Look at his heart for these people, though. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. So he's not lying, guys. With Jesus Christ... As my witness and the Holy Spirit confirming, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. The people he's getting a chance to speak to right now. My Jewish brothers and sisters, this is the part that I can't get over. I would be willing to forever be cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. Y'all, I might give up my life for somebody to know the Lord, but I don't know if I'd go to hell for them and take their place in hell so that they could be saved. And he's not lying. Y'all, he wanted to see these people come to know Jesus Christ. And you can just, can't you see it? I mean, he's probably dreaming of this day, this opportunity. When he's this bold witness, and, and what happens on the day of Pentecost happens in this Sanhedrin, and these religious leaders come to faith, and they, they turn around, and they, they lead the nation of Israel in revival. And instead of making much of Jesus, not only did he lose his temper, he lost his opportunity to testify about Jesus. Paul says, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And I read that, and, I, and I'm just like, my heart breaks. Is that all you want to say? 
When I, was in, uh, when I was in college, there was a day, thank God, I got into dental school because I was a zo zoology major. And uh, if you don't know what a zoology major is, I could have been, like if they filmed uh, We Bought a Zoo Part 2, that could be me. And uh, I was taking an entomology course, which is just the study of insects. And before you know it, this, this project was uh, creeping, on, creeping up on me. I had to get five insects, catch them, and super glue them on a note card and do an oral presentation and do, you know, tell the class all about these five insects. So I wait till the last minute. I'm living with three guys that are not clean. It was probably the, all them. I was the clean one probably. And, um, you know, I start looking for insects. I catch four of them in our house. <laughs> and I need one more. And, um, and so we lived by the, the pool in our apartment complex. I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be some insects in that drain at the pool. Pretty good idea. I go over there. The only problem was the girl that, not me, because I was, had my eye on Sarah. The, the girl that all my roommates liked in the apartment complex was at the pool laying out. And so I'm not going to be that guy digging around in the drain for the insect. So I turn around, and I come back, come back, and my, my apartment's right by the pool, and I come back, and in the corner of my eye, I see a dragonfly, number five. The only problem is I didn't have an insect net because they fly. And so I go in there, and I find, like, a Publix grocery bag, and I'm out there trying to catch this stupid dragonfly. And it's, it sees me coming. You know, insects, they've got, like, a thousand eyes. And um, they see me coming, and I'm, I t I'm not kidding. I dive midair with the bag to get it. And out of the corner of my eye, that girl walks around the corner. And I turn, I'm on the ground, I look probably just so stupid and weird. And my brain is telling me, John, say something, say something. And all I could burst out was I have to catch insects. There's nothing you else you want to say, Paul? Is that it? Do you want to mention maybe the word Jesus? And that how maybe he radically saved you. That you were a first century, basically an ISIS member that hunted down Christians, arrested them, had them killed. Little did you know that the Lord Jesus was hunting you down. And now you're on trial because of the resurrection. You're on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who proved, hey, a couple weeks ago, we heard that, that he is the Lord of, of the, the winds and the waves obey him. The demons obey him. And guess what? Death can't even hold him. That, he, that, that, that on the third day, he came up out of the grave showing that he has the power of even, even death. The thing that we're scared of the most. And the hope that you have is, if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. If he can do it for Jamie Baker, he can do it for Seth. There, that there's hope in the gospel because there's power in it that he can make you and take you into a, and make you into a new creation, totally transform you with new desires. And just man, it was such an opportunity to to, to look these people in the eyes and tell them. I want you to have what I've got. 
the most valuable thing in this earth is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. And yet he doesn't. And so here's the lesson. Even the best of us, the man who wrote half the New Testament, the man who had been beaten with rods five times, right? The man, for the sake of the gospel, by the way, not just because. The man who had been shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead, he knew what it would cost him if he spoke the truth here, and he decided to be shrewd and rely on his cleverness to save his own skin rather than be bold and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and shine his light bright for Jesus. And when we rely on our own strength, it causes us to forfeit being all we can be for Christ. And of course, Paul's clever idea backfires anyways. They're about to pull him apart anyways. And the Roman commander has to step in and, and basically pull him out by force, and I can just picture Paul alone in the barracks by himself, the most discouraged he's ever been in his entire Christian walk. That's where I think he's at. The most discouraged he's been since he's come to know the Lord. He's in the barracks, probably telling Dr. Luke, I can't believe I did this. You know, I bet there's tears coming down his face. I messed it up. I had an opportunity. The Lord gave me a platform to be his witness. And now I think this is it. This is it. I thought it was the end. I'm not going to go make it out the next day. They're going to kill me. This is not how I wanted to finish the race. I've embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed the kingdom. I've embarrassed my king. And it's not a good place to be. That's that point X. And when you start veering off the pathway to point B, you know what happens? In those moments of when we blow it, because the Lord loves you, he begins to convict you. The fork in the road back to point B starts with succumbing to the conviction of the Lord. The fork in the road. You know what I mean by the fork in the road. You, you come to the place and you can either go back to the left or keep going the way you're going. The Lord and his grace, when we start veering off, he's got on-ramps for us to take to get us back to where he's called us to be. There's a fork in the road that we can take. And it starts with succumbing to the conviction of the Lord. You know, people ever just push your buttons? Ananias, he, he had it coming. And you think, man, if I could just give them a piece of my mind, I'd feel so much better. And how, how do you feel when you let someone have it with your words? You feel this big, right? And, 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 and you know what I'm eternally grateful for and yet I hate? is to start to feel the conviction of the Lord. I'm eternally great, grateful for it because it's good news. It's an invitation by the Spirit of God to bring you back into fellowship with Him. Right? The conviction of the Lord is not just a, a, a guilty conscience. It's not just shame over sin. It's, it's, being a, it's, a, it's a brokenness before the Lord that 
where you're acutely aware that he is holy and that I am not. Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 6, no man can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Part of that draw is the conviction of the Lord. And it only stops in one of two ways. Either you harden your heart or you succumb to the conviction of the Lord. That's the only way the conviction leaves you alone. Is either harden your heart or succumb to the conviction of the Lord. Like I said, it, it is a fork in the road. And if you harden your heart, you don't take the on-ramp. You don't take the fork. You keep going the way you're going. And can I tell you, there can be a point in your life when there are no more forks in the road. You harden your heart to the point where the conviction of the Lord stops. But the Bible says, if you draw near to him in broken, brokenness over your sin, he will draw near to you. That's a promise. And look what happens to Paul in verse 11. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. Take courage. Which, which really implies two things. We fix our course to point B when we reject the lies of Satan. We fix our course to point B when we reject the lies of Satan. Why would the Lord tell him to take courage, Paul? unless fear and discouragement had flooded Paul's heart. To take courage means you have to do away with the discouragement. Does that make sense? Uh, Christian, th th you know, this is wartime. We are in a spiritual war. And, and, and I love that illustration that Dr. Allen used last week, how Satan takes an acre of your heart, of your 100-acre heart, and, he, and you just kind of give him one little acre, and how then he's got you. You're just like a, a city with no walls now, right? So the, the battleground for your heart is really is fought in your mind. That's where it starts. That's why we're called, when we put on our spiritual armor, to put on the helmet of salvation, so we do not believe the lies that Satan is feeding us. And so when Paul is in the barracks, you can, you can, he's running all these things through his mind, I, I imagine. I'm a, I've totally blown it. God's done with me. On and on and on. He's, he's, he's the most discouraged he's ever been. And this is what the first thing we need to do, especially when you're isolated and you're alone, like Paul was here. This is what Satan wants you to believe. Lie number one, Satan wants you to believe that you're a failure. Lie number two, Satan wants you to believe God is finished using you. Lie number three, Satan wants you to believe that you have to earn God's favor. Lie number four, Satan wants you to believe that God is far away. Satan ever whisper things to you like that? There, you, you can, we could keep going. That's, that's just four common ones. Almost like God doesn't care what you're going through. You're isolated in the barracks. You got this on your own. Your boat's taking on water. Jesus is on the cushion sleeping, and he doesn't care. Right? That's what Satan wants you to believe. 
He works in your heart through fear, through discouragement, through worry, through guilt. Those are his main tools. And to trust God and his promises necessarily requires us to stop believing the lies. That's why when you are putting on the spiritual armor, you have to put off something to put on something. Right? Repentance means to turn away from something and turn to something. And so first, you, ha- you have to put away something here, which is believing wrongly about God and his word and where you fit in there. The enemy of your soul is prowling around like a roaring lion, the Bible says, and he is seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for victims. And you know what fear and worry and discouragement and condemnation, you know what all those things produce in you? It produces a mentality where you feel like a victim. And you're just opening yourself to be devoured then by him. To take courage, we must first lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, every lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, lay aside Satan's lies. And then finally, we find our point B by continually receiving the encouragement of our Savior. We find our point B by continually receiving the encouragement of our Savior. In verse 11, it says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome also. To, to take courage means it's his and here. I'm giving it to you. And you have to receive it. You have to take it. Encouragement is something that's a gift that he gives his children. No one demonstrates the gift of encouragement more than the Lord Jesus. To break the word apart, it actually means to fill your heart with courage. That's what encouragement means. And this little phrase, take courage, this is one of Jesus' favorite little phrases. He says it, it's in the Bible seven times, and he says it six of those seven times. Maybe you remember, to the paralytic lying on his bed, Jesus said, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with the hemorrhage who touched the friend to Jesus' coat, he said, daughter, take courage, your faith has saved you. To the disciples who thought Jesus walking on the water was a ghost, He said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And to the disciples on the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome this world. And then here, the following night, when the Apostle Paul is probably at the the most discouraged he's ever been, he comes and draws near to him, and he says, Paul, Be of good cheer. Take courage. How do we take courage? We take courage when we draw near to his presence. Look at verse 11. It says, In the following night, the Lord stood by him. You see, the Lord Jesus, he he knew exactly where Paul was. The Lord Jesus knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're going through, that it feels like you're in the barracks by yourself. But no prison bars, no guards can separate Paul from the Lord. The Lord, I love how it doesn't say that he stood over him or behind him, but it stood by his side. 
can I get a witness that when you're at your lowest, there is a friend that will draw near that is closer than a brother? And guess what? Not only was Paul not alone in the barracks, he found out firsthand that it is better to be in the barracks with the Lord than to be anywhere else without him. I've heard it said that you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The great Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, he wrote this, listen to this. I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my little witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I'm sure that in these things, the richest, most tender love has been manifested towards me. In your present storm, does he seem far, far away? Christian, don't believe that lie. Matthew 28, 20 says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus not only stood at your place on the cross, he stands by you right now. And we take courage when we believe these five little words the Bible says. I am with you always. It's in his presence that we begin to take courage. We take courage also when we are struck by his pronouncements. What do I mean by the word pronouncements? By his words. Jesus not only stood by him, it says that Jesus said. And that's why I think you, many of you just got up here this morning. You didn't come here what John Wilson had to say, you wanted to hear a word from the Lord. Look in verse 2. Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. There's some people that are standing by Paul that punch him. And then verse 11, Dr. Luke uses the same language to, to say basically the same thing. There's someone else now in verse 11 standing by Paul, but he doesn't strike him in the mouth. He strikes him in the heart with what he says. Right? That's what true preachers do. True preachers aim for the heart. And, and it's, it's that moment when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and everything else in the room goes away and it's just you and the Lord and the Lord God speaks to you. And it's the bread that man cannot live without. It's when the Logos becomes the rhema. It's what, it's what brings transformation in our life. You ever had a moment like that? It's the moment when Dr. Allen and, and almost quit the ministry and, and, and Bible uh, seminary, was ready to throw in the towel, goes to church that Sunday. He's moving back home. He's giving it up. He's going towards point X, and the Lord comes by him, and it's Genesis 21.1. And it, it said, And the Lord remembered Sarah. And he did to Sarah what he had promised. But what he heard, and the Lord remembered Richie. And he did what, was, what he promised to Richie. 
And we have him still in the ministry because of that sustaining word. He doesn't just bring us to life through his word. He sustains us through his word. And th those are the moments that, that uh, Mr. Cliff was talking about this morning when, 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 when all scripture is all scripture is God breathed and, and the Lord, he just comes and he invades your little personal space. And in that God breath moment, he speaks to you. He gets right in your face and it's the exact thing you needed to hear to get you out of whatever you're going through. It's the bread that brings nourishment to your soul. It's the water that's the living water. Look what he says. Perhaps the lowest point of Paul's life. You have solemnly testified to the facts in Jerusalem. Wait a second. He just totally blew it, right? No one got saved. Zero converts. Lost his testimony. Lost his temper. Won't be able to witness to these men again. The Lord Jesus comes by him and stands by his side and tells him, you have solemnly testified about me in Jerusalem. You know what that tells me? It tells me that it's not our performance is why he stands by us. You know, the moment you can begin to enjoy God's favor is the moment when you stop trying to earn his favor. You ever been to the uh, T? Uh, I know some of our kids are playing T ball right now. When we coach T ball, y'all, it would be like mid swing, and that little kid would stop looking at the ball, and look, where would his eyes go? Mom and dad, are they watching? And so they, of course, they would miss because they, they want to know, are you, are you proud of them? Are you, are you watching? They get to first base. The first thing all my kids would do is look at me and go, you know, I made it. Spiritually speaking, we are the same way. Hey, Lord, did you see what I did for you? Are you pleased with me now? Are you proud of me? Are you... Uh, Can we love our children and show them that we love them because not because of how smart they are or how much, you know, how, how well they are at uh, obeying you, but you love them the same because they're simply your son or your daughter. You're showing them what God's love is like. It's not based on your performance. The reason why you're in right standing with God isn't what you do, it's what Jesus has done for you. If the gospel is true, then that means that I'm not awesome, that you're not awesome, but it means he is awesome. And that when you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you're more loved and accepted than you could ever be. I got to run. I got to run. I want to talk more about that, but I think that's what Dr. Allen says, right? I got to run. Thank goodness for grace group. We'll talk about more of that this week. How we try to earn God's favor. Lastly, we take courage by clinging to his promises. We take courage by clinging to his promises. Look at verse 11, how it finishes. So you must testify also in Rome. You may want to underline the word must. You know, when, when God uses the word must, it's on his calendar. 
It is going to happen. You could take it to the bank. Basically, what, what the Lord is telling Paul, I still have work for you to do. Hey, have you ever blown it? And you're over at point X, and you feel like your life is a failure, and there's nothing left for you to do. When the Lord God says, hey, I've got something for you to do for me in Rome, does that not encourage your soul? We can take courage knowing that God is not done with us if we still have breath in our lungs. There, the words, there is more for you to do, it grieves a lazy servant, but it brings joy to a faithful servant. Grace Church, there are more people to bring to Christ. There are more ways for you to serve them. There are more people for you to pray for. There are more hungry for you to feed. There are more naked people to clothe. There are more orphans to take care of, more weary saints for you to encourage. God's not done with you. And when God's work he has for you to do is done, and then he will take you home. And why would you want to be here one minute longer? Paul's point B meant he had to get to Rome and write four or five more books of the canon, and there is nothing that the gates of hell can do about it. It must happen. This morning, Grace Church, we, we can take courage knowing that he who stands with us is greater than he, he who stands against us. You know what, you know what this, the rest of this chapter says? Man, the, those Sadducees, they are mad. They, they take a, an oath to... They're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. And they've got this scheme. They're going to kill him. Just so happens, because the Lord is sovereign, Paul's nephew overhears the plan, goes and tells his mom. His mom goes and tells the Roman commander. And look what the Roman commander does. The Roman commander prepares 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to personally escort Paul safely out of Jerusalem towards Rome to Caesarea. You know what that tells me? The Lord God Almighty is able to raise up 470 of Paul's enemies and make them his guardians and march them safely back to point B. That's what he is able to do. Believer, you are immortal until God's work he has for you to do is done. And we can take courage by clinging to his promises. So what's your point B? Can I tell you, if you keep clinging to his promises, you keep being struck by the word of God. You keep drawing near to him, you keep following that pathway. Because it's going to lead straight to it. I don't know what it is. You may not know what it is, but you keep doing those three things, and let's see what happens. On your journey with Jesus, your problems are simply platforms for which he can display his sovereignty. Remember Dr. Allen said that a couple weeks ago? Can I add on your journey with Jesus that your problems can be simply platforms from which he can display his sovereignty? Ask Paul. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're running the race well. You're not really veering off over here to the side. You know what you can do? 
you can be that encourager like the Lord Jesus Christ is. Where you see someone struggling, you come next to them. The, the gift of encouragement, remember we went through that in Romans when uh, we went through the gifts. That definition that Dr. Allen gave us was the gift of encouragement is the spirit-given capacity to come alongside and help someone in time of trouble, strengthen someone in a time of weakness, and inspire them to be all they can be for Jesus Christ. What a gift for the church. To inspire someone else to be the best they can be for Jesus Christ. Are you an encourager? You can use your tongue to build people up or tear them down. Good words, they're worth much and they cost little. Maybe that's your plan B, or your, your point B. Grace Church, how have you done so far with the platform that he has given you? And maybe you find yourself this morning, you find yourself over there by point X. And you feel like you've made a train wreck of your life. That's why I asked Jamie Baker to come give his testimony this morning. Because he'll, he'll be the first to tell you, if God can save me, I don't want to hear it. God can save you. But it starts was succumbing to the conviction of the Lord and not hardening your heart. I'm gonna, in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to pray for y'all. I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Cliff and, and Colin to come forward. If you want to respond to the Lord, this is, this is his promise that he makes. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Will you respond to him? Grace Church, will you stand with me? Father God, Lord, we, we, we give you 